actually know? Well, one way to humble them might be through something as simple as an exam. You know, just give them a test. And this test or this exam, it could come in a number of different ways. It could come formally through a professor, or it could come more informally through the natural rhythms of life. Life is one big test, and it can quickly expose our ignorance and our inadequacies. Think about the nature of a test with me for a moment. Tests can be administered for various reasons. Let's just consider two. A test can be administered by a teacher in order to ascertain knowledge about the students. How much of the material do you understand? How well am I communicating? Stuff like that. But a test can also be given for the sake of the student. A test can be given to humble the student, to demonstrate to the student how little he or she actually knows. If a student has fallen victim to the Dunning-Kruger effect, takes a high-level exam and fails that exam, it may very well wake him up to the reality of his own ignorance and inadequacy. Well, this morning's text begins with a test very much like the one I've just described to you. A test given not so much for the sake of the teacher, God, but for the sake of the student, Israel. Look at chapter 2 in the book of Judges. We're going to go back a little bit. I know we covered chapter 2 last week, but just for context, starting in verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might not, excuse me, might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So, The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for their wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, completely sufficient for all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Now... You can see that the word test occurs three times in this short passage. So what is this test? What's the nature of this test that the Lord is administering to his people? Well, it's this. Can the people of Israel remain faithful to the Lord in his covenant that they made with him with the people in their midst, with the Canaanites in their midst? Can they, as verse 4 asks, obey the commandments of the Lord while they live with idols in the land. 
Now, there are two dimensions to this test. There are two reasons why the Lord is testing his people in this way. Here they are. First, to discipline them. Secondly, to disciple them. Let's talk about the discipline first. You can see in chapter 3, verse 1, that one reason for the administration of this test was so that the people might, the language that, that the author uses here is, know war. So that the people might know war in order to teach them war. What does that mean? <laughs> well, what's going on here? Why does God want to, to teach the people of Israel war? Some interpreters have uh, understood the testing like this. God wanted his people, who would have to fight battles in the future, to not lose the craft of warfare, you know, to maintain a state of military readiness. So he left these foreign people in the land so Israel could keep fighting. Why do they need to keep fighting? So they could keep their skills sharp, passing on the tips and the tricks of the military trade from one generation to the next. I can understand why someone might read the text that way. It's, it's very practical. It's very pragmatic. But I don't think that's right. And the main reason why I don't think that that's right is because it doesn't even square with the context of this testing. The context that we're given here is the context of punishment. That's the reason why we started reading back in chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20 bleeds right into the testing talked about in chapter 3. And in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, we see that Israel is under discipline. Go back and just look at 20 verses 20, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord and their fathers. So the context here is that the people of Israel have broken covenant with God. And this knowing of warfare and this teaching of warfare is not a blessing. Hey, I want to make sure that you guys have all the tools that you need for the future. No, the context is the context of a curse, of discipline. Okay, well, how is it that knowing warfare and teaching warfare is a curse? How is this a sense of discipline on Israel? Well, the explanation is actually really simple. You wouldn't know that by reading any of the commentaries on this text. None of them mention it, but it's right there staring you in the face. One of the promises of the covenant of Israel when they entered the promised land was that there would be no war. That's one of the things that makes the promised land the promised land. That's why you want to go there. That's why you want to live there. There's peace in the land. And God says this specifically to Israel in the book of Leviticus. As they're preparing to make their way to the promised land, this is what God promises them. He says, I will give you peace in the land. And you shall lie down, which means you're not afraid of anything. And none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through the land. Now, this promise that there would be no warfare in the land, this was not an unconditional promise. The promise was, if you are obedient to me, I will bless you in this way. It will be a blessing of my covenant relationship with you. 
And if you drive these people from the land, and as we know what we learned from last week, they did not drive the people from the land. They failed to do that, and therefore the curse on them would be that they would know war with the people that they left in the land. Now, if you don't understand how knowing warfare, experiencing war is a curse, well, that's a good thing. It, it, it probably means that you're just not very well acquainted with the horrors of war. And that's actually a sign of God's blessing on your life because war is horrific. And if you've never been to war, you know, if you have a grandpa who's been to war, you have a buddy who's a veteran who's been to war, talk to them. Ask them what war is like. And then maybe read a book about World War I and the trench warfare and Vietnam and Jungle Rod and Korea and Frostbite and... War is horrendous. It's not hell. You've heard that phrase before, right? War is hell. Well, no. Hell is hell. And there's nothing that can compare to the horrors of suffering God's wrath for all of eternity. But on this side of eternity, war may be as close as you can get to hell. And to have to live with the reality of warfare as a people... With no rest, no respite, that is a curse. So that's the discipline aspect. Now let's consider the discipleship aspect. The text says that God does this to know, to know. He tests them and it says to know, but it doesn't say who needs to know. It just says to know. Let's consider that for a moment. In Scripture, whenever God tests someone... He never does so in order that he might learn something for himself. Right? You have to remember that one of the things about being God is that you already know everything. That's kind of what makes you God. Just listen to a couple of verses. Psalm 139, verse 4. The psalmist says, Even before a word is on my tongue, right? before it comes out of my heart, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The book of Acts. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. So, in chapter 3, verse 4, when the text says that the testing of Israel was to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, we know theologically from what we learn in the rest of Scripture that what this text can't mean is that the Lord tested Israel so that he could find out information about Israel's heart that he didn't already possess. If God needed to learn something from Israel, he would be not God. Okay, well then why does he test them? What does it mean to know? Well, in Scripture, whenever God tests someone, he always does so in order to reveal something to the one who is being tested. And when that happens, there's a purifying effect on the person who has this information revealed to them. So just let me give you some, some examples from the rest of, of the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God's trying to show you, you hey, <laughs> you're a beast. He's testing you so you can see you're not what you think you are. Psalm 66:10. For you, O God, have tested us you have tried us as silver is tried. What does that mean, this language of silver being tried? Proverbs 17, 3. 
The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Here's what God is doing, okay? He's putting his people in a position to see the ugly reality of their sin. That's what it means that the Lord is testing here to know. Think about this example that the book of Proverbs gives us, that the book of Psalms gives us, the example of, of silver and gold going into the, into the furnace. In the ancient world, you would put silver in a crucible, you would put gold in a furnace, and the intense heat would reveal the purity of the metals or the lack thereof. And when the Lord tests his people, he puts them through the crucible in the furnace of great heat in order to reveal their purity to them or lack thereof. And isn't that how God works, friends? I mean, theologically we see that, but haven't you found that to be true of your own experience? How many of us have the testimony of God letting us go deeper and deeper into some pattern of sin, not to hurt us, but to help us, not to destroy us, but to expose us, to show us the extent of our weakness and sin. How many of us have been walking around in pride and spiritual arrogance thinking, yeah, God's really lucky to have me on his team. You know, I really got this sin thing under control. And then he lets us just devolve and go deeper and deeper into our disobedience so that we might see who we truly are, to reveal that we really are beasts in our sin. To show us how much we need a Savior. I wonder if God has been testing anyone like that in this room lately. Maybe God's been testing you like the Israelites, allowing you to keep the enemy in your midst. Maybe you haven't been driving the sin out of your life like you were supposed to. And God is accommodating that for you in some way. Not to destroy you, but to destroy your pride, your self-sufficiency. And to show you just how much you really need him. Let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6 show us that Israel failed the text. Let's go back and look at that. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So the test was, could they live amongst the idols in the land and remain pure? No, they failed the test. Neutrality with idols, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. You either destroy them or they corrupt you. There's no middle ground. And as Israel tried to live with the people of the land, they soon became like the people of the land. And According to what we are told here about marriage, it seems like marriage is the main way that this corruption happens and is evolving generationally. Now, this morning's text is just one text among many in the Bible where intermarriage is expressly forbidden. 
Intermarriage is expressly forbidden. And this language of condemnation of intermarriage, it can strike many modern readers as problematic. Why? Well, because we tend to read this prohibition against intermarriage through the lens of race more than religion, which really says more about who we are in our context than it does about the Bible and and what it says. But to be fair, there is, especially in America, ample reason to be nervous about this, to be skittish about this. A lot of people have abused these teachings and these verses for their own racial prerogatives. Let me just read one example to you. Most of our people don't know this, but interracial marriage is a sin. It's all throughout the Bible. It's not only a sin, it's one of the main reasons why the Most High is allowing our people to suffer so much. Because when we marry outside of our nationality, we pollute his DNA and bring forth a genetic mutation. But don't take my word for it. Let's go to the scriptures so that you can see what it says for yourself. Now, it may surprise you to know that the person who wrote this is actually an African-American theologian. Yes, Racist interpretations of the Bible move in all directions. This author is, on the one hand, absolutely correct when he says that the Bible forbids intermarriage. But this author is, on the other hand, absolutely, positively dead wrong when he says that what the Bible forbids is interracial marriage. The intermarriage that is forbidden in the Bible and in this morning's text is never racial. It's always religious. You have to remember, brothers and sisters, that we all come from the same parents, Adam and Eve. And as human beings, we may have variations of physical characteristics in our bodies like skin tone, musculoskeletal structure, hair type, eye color. All of these are just variations of the one human race. And my prayer is that we get to the point eventually where the color of people's skins matters as much to us as the color of people's hairs and the the color of their eyes. We're not there today. But we know from Scripture that our different sizes, our different shapes, our different colors, our different hairstyles, they're all different expressions of the same beautiful creation which is meant to image God. Now, establishing this idea that intermarriage that's forbidden in the Bible is religious, not racial, some of us may still have a problem with this prohibition. We just may be uncomfortable with the idea of anyone telling us that we can't marry who we want to marry for any reason. And it was, it's here that we would do well to remember that God never issues arbitrary commands. He's not just a giant rule-dispensing machine up there in the sky. You can't do this. You can't do that. He's not a giant wagging finger who delights to just say no about anything that you happen to ask him, anything that you want. So when it comes to intermarriage, we've already seen why God is so resolutely opposed to the Jews marrying non-Jews. Why is that? Well, we saw it last week in Deuteronomy 7. Let me read it for you again. You shall not intermarry with them, that's the foreign peoples of the lands, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. See, friends, the issue here is not skin tone. The issue is sin. Now, I told you last week that the book of Judges is cyclical in nature, right? It kind of goes like this all the way down. 
But so too is the entire story of Israel. It's this big cycle downward, down, 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 down. And if, if you were to fast forward in your Bibles from the book of Judges, several centuries, all the way to the days of Malachi and Nehemiah, you'd find the people of Israel doing the same thing as they're doing in verses 6 and 7 of this morning's text, making the same mistakes, marrying people outside of the covenant. You remember how the story goes, right? The people of Israel were sent into exile because of their sin. But then God, because of his covenant love and grace, he rescued Israel from exile. He brought them back into the promised land. But when they came back into the promised land, God told them through his prophets, hey, if you guys want to stay here and stay out of exile, here are a couple things you need to do. Number one, don't marry pagans. And then the first thing they did was go and marry a bunch of pagans. So God speaks through Malachi and Nehemiah and rebukes Israel for it. And listen to the language he uses. He uses. He says, you have been acting unfaithfully against me by marrying foreign women and men. So here's the spiritual principle I want you to understand this morning from this text. When God's people intermarry with those who do not know God, they corrupt their faith. Have you not seen this reality played out in the lives of friends or family or coworkers or fellow church members? I remember a young woman who comes from a good, godly family. Discipled, trained up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. The family wasn't perfect, but they were, man, doing a good job. She met a young man, didn't follow the Lord. She married him. Today, she's in the world. No longer professes to be a Christian. I think we probably can all think of stories like that. This is the reason why in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about a widow and whether or not the widow can remarry, he says, yeah, the widow can remarry, but only in the Lord. Take a moment, friends, to consider the nature of marriage, why God is issuing this command in this way. What is marriage? It is the deepest possible union of two human beings. In marriage, we are connecting ourselves to one another in the deepest way possible. That's why the Bible, speaking metaphorically, but still speaking profoundly, says the two have become one. Which is why the prophet Malachi, explaining marriage to the Israelites in his day, says this. Did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So not only have the two become one, but according to Malachi, whenever God's people come together and get married, God's spirit is participating in the union. It is your spirit, your spouse's spirit, and God's spirit coming together to form a union. If that's true, brothers and sisters, does it make any sense at all for us to say that if we love the Lord, if we belong to the Lord, if we've been saved by the Lord, if we're united to the Lord by our faith, to say that we have a deep and intimate relationship with him and then to go and unite ourselves with people who do not know him, with people who are actively opposed to him. This is why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the answer is no portion. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
None. For we are the temple of the living God. Christians marrying non-Christians is not a matter of wisdom and prudence. It's a matter of righteousness and obedience to the clear commands of Scripture. Listen to the language of Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. Jerusalem has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord and has married the daughter of a foreign god. How does the Lord feel about his people marrying people who don't belong to him, marrying outside of the covenant? He says it's an abomination. To take your life and unite it with the life of someone who is actively opposed to the Lord in every single way is to profane his name. Now, by God's grace, we have a number of single people in our church. Some young, some not so young, a little more seasoned, right? If you're here and you're single, uh, I've been right where you are, okay? And I, I understand the temptations. I, I know that Satan can come whispering in your ear, trying to convince you that somehow, someway, it would be okay for you to marry a non-Christian. And I understand the battlefield that is your heart. You know, I understand what it's like. You're in a church that's full of young people who, at least the, the way you feel, everyone's getting married and, and everyone's having babies and, and here I am, all by myself. On top of that, you may be burning with lust. And maybe, maybe you've heard pastors talk about lust in such a way that leads you to believe that if you just get married, that problem will go away. False. So you could just, there could be a bunch of different ways that you could reason yourself towards marrying someone who's not a Christian. But listen to me, friends. Do not do it. Do not do it. It may very well lead to your destruction. When, when, when we as sinners see something that we want, even if it's not good for us, even if we know we shouldn't have it because God says we shouldn't have it, we have the uncanny ability of convincing ourselves that we're the exception to the rule. God won't be mad if I break this rule or the consequences that God has promised for breaking this rule won't come to me. I'm the exception. But that's just not true. Here are some of the ways that uh, many uh, Christians justify marrying non-Christians. Uh, number one, you've probably heard of missionary dating, right? You're dating someone smart, cute, beautiful, probably has a good job, you know what I'm saying? Banging body, right? whole package not following the Lord right you know you know if you're a Christian you know that 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 they're not a Christian but you can evangelize them and and you you've you've given them books and you're and you've gotten them to come to church a couple of times and and you've even oh you're so encouraged he's begun to say the God more often when you talk yeah Missionary dating is never good. It, it almost never works. We'll talk a little bit more about when it does later and why that doesn't really matter. Uh, but you should know that you're setting yourself up for failure if you're on that path. Number two, the I know a guy rationale. Right? It's, it's well, my friend, my brother, my uncle, my cousin, my sister, my mom married an unbeliever 
And wouldn't you know it, the unbeliever ended up getting converted. And so if it could work for them, it could work for me. Is that the way we make life decisions? I mean, I've heard of people hitting themselves in the head with a ball-peen hammer and becoming musical savants. That doesn't mean that I should go crack myself in the skull and hope that I can learn to play the piano, right? That would not be wise. We would expect that the most normal course of events, if I hit myself in the head with a hammer, would be that I would just be brain dead. That's the most normal thing that happens. Is it possible that you could marry an unbeliever and then they get saved in the future? Yeah, it's possible. It's happened. I can think of two families in this church, two wives who have married unbelieving husbands who have later had the husbands get saved. And both of them would tell you, do not do it. God may save your husband, but it is a rough journey in the process. But even if your spouse does end up getting saved somewhere down the line, it doesn't matter because the plain fact of the matter is is that Scripture says do not do it. We don't violate a clear command of Scripture in the hopes of maybe someone someday possibly getting saved. We don't sin in order to evangelize. That's not evangelism. That's just God being kind to you in your wickedness. Now, sometimes Christians come to realize what God has to say about these things when, they, when they've been in a relationship for a while, when they've been in a dating relationship for several years, or even when they're engaged, and they feel like, if I break up with him or her now, well, then they're never going to know the Lord. Well, now we're just back to missionary dating, you see? You can't control the outcome of this person's salvation. All you can control is the process of your own obedience. Now, most of the time, when you stay in a relationship with an unbeliever, you should also know that you're doing them tremendous harm in a couple of different ways. One way is you may be hurting them by giving them false hope, right? Hope for a relationship that can never be or should never be. But as long as they every now and then go to church with you, every now and then willing to pray with you, do a Bible study, every so often engage in some kind of vague God talk, you stay with them. And you give them hope, hope they shouldn't have. You can also hurt them by staying with them and pressuring them to convert. But you know that that's not how conversion works, right? Somebody, just because they say that they're a Christian because they think you're so pretty and they want to be with you, doesn't mean that they've actually become a Christian. And then you may lead them to believe that they actually are deepening their deception, pushing them further away from the door of salvation. You think you're helping them, you're actually hurting them. Finally, and most naively, we see Christians marry non-Christians because they think, you know what, I just think I can make it work. Right? I just think I can make it work. Sure, he's an agnostic. I love Jesus. But I think if we're respectful towards one another, and if we listen and have open lines of communication and, if, and blah, 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 we can really make it work. Friends, it's just not true. Now, you've probably heard the old cliche, you know, she was a Presbyterian, he was a Methodist, but somehow they made it work. Well, yeah, they're both Christians. 
you know, and they may not agree about everything, but two Christians, yeah, they can make a marriage work even if they have some denominational distinctive differences. But a pagan and a Christian, an unbeliever and a believer, how can that happen? How can that work? It can't. Think about every aspect of your life that your faith touches. It touches what you think about finances. It touches what you think about sex and your body. It touches on family and child raising. It touches on career. And we can just keep going and going. Your faith influences how you think about all these things. That's why it's called a worldview. It impacts every part of your world, the way that you see it, the way that you exist in it. And if you yoke yourself to someone who views the world in a fundamentally different way, you will find yourself going down one of three paths. Number one, the path of happiness if the unbeliever gets saved. That's the best case but least likely scenario and it should never be presumed upon. So strike that off the list. Path number two, the path of divorce. Because you have fundamentally different beliefs about everything that you need to agree upon in order to be married. Guys, listen, marriage is hard enough when you agree on everything. You don't want to (laughs) import more difficulty. Or three, the path of compromise. You'll either compromise your happiness because you'll be in a cold, dead marriage, or you'll compromise your faith so that you can be in a marriage that is happy. But that kind of happiness is no happiness at all. There is no happiness apart from faithfulness to Christ. So you need to protect your heart, single people. You need to protect your heart. You need to, well, here's here's how you can do that. First, consider the example of like Solomon in, in, in scripture, right? Learn from his mistake. Gain your wisdom from his errors. Listen to what scripture has to say about Solomon. Was it not because of marriages like these, marrying, marrying foreign women, that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Yeah. Nehemiah is actually quoting that story of Solomon to the people of Israel when he was telling them not to intermarry. Secondly, you can guard your heart by finding your ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. This is the most important one. When you are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, well then you don't really need to find your ultimate satisfaction in someone else. And so you can be content to be single. Even if it's hard, you can be content to be single while you wait for the Lord. Whether he brings you someone or calls you to a life of perpetual singleness, you can find joy and peace in that. And then finally, you can be committed to the body of Christ. Right? And so you guys are like, man, he's been talking to single people for like 15 minutes. Okay, well, this, is, this applies to you too. You need to love your single members of the church. You need to serve them. You need to help hold them accountable. You need to be there for them in their loneliness. Weep with them when they weep. You need to help them stay on the, on the path of righteousness and obedience, which is why our church covenant says this. We will walk together, married and single, in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may acquire. And occasion has 
required this in the past in the life of our church. We've had faithful Christian members dating non-Christians, and we've had to come along and be like, hey, uh, what you doing? Love you. Let's talk. And God has been very kind to bless that. Okay, so we've so far in the sermon seen the nature of the test that Israel experienced. We've seen the outcome of the test. They failed the test. Now let's wrap up our time together by looking at the consequences of Israel's failure in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals in the Asherah. So they were disobedient. The people were in the land. They were tested. They failed. They intermarried. They forgot the Lord. That led to idolatry, worshiping the Baal and the Asherah. Now, most of the time when we Christians think about idolatry, we tend to think about idolatry in a more conceptual framework, right? We don't think about carvings or golden calves. We don't think about deities like Zeus or Poseidon. We don't think about Artemis or Athena, Ares or Apollo. It's just not the world that we live in, right? In our modern context, we think about idolatry with idols such as comfort and convenience, entertainment, family and romance, the idols of safety and security, and all those are valid. But in the ancient world, those things were expressly and specifically manifested in more concrete forms. And the two idols that the peoples of the land, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the main idols of the land that they worshipped were the idols mentioned in verse 7, the Baal and the Asherah. Now, I don't get to talk about Baal and Asherah very often, so let's talk about it. Are you guys excited? This is going to help you read your Bibles better. So as you guys start your Bible reading plan in January, right? You're gonna, okay, all right. According to Canaanite theology, Canaanite is just a good umbrella term for all the peoples there in the land, okay? So according to Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land depended on the sexual relationship between Baal, the male deity, and Asherah, the female deity. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but suffice it to say that this kind of worship, it went something like this. If Baal and Asherah would copulate the crops would come in. And if they didn't copulate, the land would suffer. No rain, no grain. So the question then for anyone living in the land would be something like this. How do we get Baal and Asherah to copulate? You would think that copulation would just be incentive enough for them, but it wasn't. You would have to get them to copulate. Well, how do you do that? Well, this is where the shrines come in. According to custom, a Canaanite male would go up to the shrine of Baal and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes there. And this intercourse between the man and the prostitute, it was representative in nature. So the man represented Baal, the prostitute woman represented Asherah. And this act of copulation would encourage the gods to do their thing. And that would bring the rain, the grain, the oil and the wine the land. What I want you to see here is that these gods were functional gods. 
I want you to see how easy it would have been for the Israelites to, to fall into this idolatry, to incorporate this kind of worship into their lives. I mean, most, it's so easy to judge Israel, right? Like if you were there, you would have been like, no way, man, I'm not doing that. But how many of you have ever known true hunger, right? How many of us have ever experienced the agony of a failed crop? But imagine yourself living in the ancient Near East. There are no food pantries, no social safety net, no soup kitchen, no food stamps, nothing like that. Your, your crop goes bad and your family suffers. Maybe you don't starve, but you suffer. Maybe you hang on tight. You pray for a better yield next season. The community comes together and they get your family through this difficult time. But then the next season comes and now blight and mildew take the crops again. Life goes from difficult to impossible. Maybe one of your children dies. One of your Canaanite neighbors might see you suffering in this way. Might approach you. You know, the reason why this is happening is because you're not worshiping Baal. You know that, right? I mean, you Yahweh worshipers, you guys have to understand, Baal controls this land. And you being the good Jew that you are, you might respond, yeah, well, I worship Yahweh. Thank you very much. And your Canaanite neighbor might respond like this. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to stop worshiping Yahweh. I like Yahweh. As a matter of fact, our clan has started worshiping Yahweh too. We think he's a great God. We heard about what he did for you guys when you came out of Egypt. That's the kind of God we want on our side too. You can worship Yahweh and Baal. It doesn't have to be either or. What is it with you Jews? Always either or, one or the other. You should worship Baal. Or, you know, keep doing what you're doing and see if you make it through the winter. No skin off my back. Now, imagine that this isn't your neighbor. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe you're a young Israelite woman and your father gave you in marriage to a well-to-do Canaanite man. And sure, he was a foreigner and he worshipped the Baals. Your father wasn't supposed to do that technically, but it seems like this man reveres Yahweh, and not only that, but your dad, you know, he, he gives sacrifices, he prays, but he's not fanatical, you know. He's not one of those crazy religious people. And he tends to care more about whether or not this man is going to take care of you than whether or not he's going to worship Yahweh properly. Or maybe you're a young Israelite man, and you've married a beautiful young Canaanite woman. And again, you know, technically it's against the rules. You weren't supposed to marry outside of the covenant. But she's so beautiful. And she's just so beautiful. And you're so confident that once you have your bride in your home, that you'll be able to get her on team Yahweh. You'll be able to lead her in the faith. It's not going to be a big deal. But maybe after some time, you come to see that this young woman is not interested in the faith at all. Maybe you can tell she's just going through the motions. I mean, Canaanites, after all, they have no problem worshiping multiple gods. And so as you continue on life together with this woman, you have children with her. And on multiple occasions, maybe you find her 
off in the corner in the shadows away from you where you would be upset if you saw it. Maybe you find her teaching the ways of Baal to the children. Maybe you find her taking the children out to the trees where the people worship the Asherah. And you see that she's teaching them the ways of Asherah worship. Now when you're together as a family, you do all the things. You go to the feasts, you make the sacrifices, you sing and pray with the people of God but you still find her saying and doing things that you know is not really of the Lord. Hmm. But maybe you're living in peace. She's raising your children well. And even if she isn't converted, maybe the Lord is, is going to do something. You don't know. So you just power through. And then, and then the drought comes. And the famine and the infertility. Your beautiful bride, the mother of your children, she comes to you in this moment of suffering and she says, consider Baal. She pleads with you in this moment. Just think about it. Our children are dying. We're going hungry. We're suffering. And you're just concerned about Yahweh and you're just so proud and you just want us to worship your God, but we're going to die. Consider Baal. Go up to that shrine and do what you have to do for our family. I'm not going to be mad. And you know, listen, you're suffering too. It hurts you to watch your family suffer. And you've, and you've heard something about those shrines. You've heard what goes on up there. And to be honest, at first you were repulsed. Then you got a little curious. Maybe you'll go up there just once. Just once. Just to kind of cover all your bases. Just to make sure that the next harvest is good. Cover all your bases. Make sure that your family doesn't suffer. You're, you're going to do it for your family. God will forgive you. Do you see, friends, just how easy it might be to lose the faith from one generation to the next? How easy it would be to forget the Lord, to begin to bring in idol worship with your worship of the one true God. You know, I wonder if there's any member of our church who's here this morning who may be in the presence, excuse me, in the process of forgetting the Lord in this way. I wonder if there's anyone here who is accommodating idols in their lives. And maybe your excuses are very practical, you know? Maybe, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it's one of those things that, like, who could argue against you for the kind of compromises you're making? Let me just give you one example. One example of what that may look like in our context. You know, Sean, I would be at church on Sundays, but I have to work. Okay, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's legitimate. You do have to put food on the table. I get that. But maybe if you're being honest, you haven't even looked for another job that would allow you to have Sundays off. Maybe if you're being honest, you're not really super bothered by not coming on Sundays. Maybe if you're being honest, you're more concerned with your family's physical food than their spiritual bread. You're more concerned that their stomachs are full than the fact that their hearts may be empty. 
Maybe you've rationalized your disobedience due to practical responsibilities. And maybe your job has just become a convenient excuse for you to stop gathering with the body of Christ. Maybe what started off as a necessity has become a delight. And maybe this lack of faithfulness will lead your family down a spiral. Disobedience, forgetting the Lord, idolatry. Now I know what you're thinking. Sean, that's a little over the top. Aren't you being a little dramatic? Maybe. Maybe I am. But I think I've seen this very thing happen so many times. It doesn't feel dramatic to me. And, and I think you also have to remember, friends, that nobody ever just takes a sharp left turn into idolatry. No one ever voluntarily, in a moment, just decides to go out into the world. It's usually just a slow drift. And it begins with small excuses that we make that are completely justifiable. And pretty soon we find that we're no longer on the road, we've gone off the guardrail, and we have lost the faith. Now, let me be clear. I don't believe that everyone here, or that even most of us here, or even that many of us here, are in the place of Israel in Judges 3. I actually want you to know that as your pastor, I'm really encouraged by our church. As I'm studying this text and as I'm thinking about how the text is hitting me and convicting me and how the text should be hitting you and convicting you, I'm actually blown away by how well our church is doing in fighting against these tendencies, how much we're trying to remain obedient to God's word even when it's difficult, even when it's practically not you know, the easiest thing in the world to do. I want to let you know that when I look at Sixth Avenue, I see us as being characterized more by repentance, you know, turning away from idols, than compromise and the acceptance of idols. When I think about our church, I think about us more in terms of actively remembering the Lord and His covenant rather than rebelling against the Lord and forgetting Him. So I am just really encouraged by us as a church. We have to be balanced. The Lord's been kind to us. He's keeping us. We're following him, we're remembering him, but compromise is always right around the corner. Let's ask God to do us good. Now, let me close with this. This sermon may feel very theoretical to you, abstract. We've been talking about the Jews in the promised land. We spent a lot of time talking to singles in the room, which in any room, there just aren't that many singles. And then my last point of application was a point of application about non-church attendance to a bunch of people who are presently attending a church service. So it's possible that you may not feel the prick of conviction from the gospel in this morning's sermon, and that wouldn't be good. So let me end with this. In this room, even in this tiny gathering, we have both Canaanites and Israelites. That is, we have those who profess to belong to God and those who don't. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter what you call yourself, a Christian or an agnostic or a Buddhist or whatever. Here's what you need to know. If you are walking in disobedience towards the Lord of the universe, you are under the curse of disobedience. And the, the curse of disobedience towards God is death. That's what scripture tells us. He who sins must die. 
Now, what that means is that every person in this room, what we need then is a way to come out from under this curse, a way to escape death. And that brings me to the good news of the gospel. The gospel is good news because it says that you can't save yourself. Now, for the most self-sufficient type A personalities among us, that may not sound like good news, but it's the best news. It says you cannot save yourself. You do not have enough power. You cannot come out from under this curse. It's too great. What you need is someone outside of yourself to rescue you from the curse. And in Jesus, we have just that. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. Christ himself redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In this one verse, you see the difference between the gospel and every other religion. Other religions from Baal and Asherah to Islam to secular humanism, they all treat religion as a matter of coercion. How are we going to get God to take care of us? We got to go do the song and dance. We got to move him to action. We have to stimulate him in the right way to get him to act on our behalf. But the gospel says, no, you can't do any of that God has already acted on your behalf in Christ when he sent him to die on the cross. Now all he demands of you is to trust in what he has done. You can't fix your situation. You can't manipulate the grains. You cannot right your wrongs. But God can, and he already has. My prayer is that you would trust in him and what he has accomplished. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. We pray that you'd help us to believe in what you've done. Help us to trust in your promises. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.